millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that tries to investigate exactly what was filthy about the movies. I'm Aoife Vrutnach. And I'm Lloyd May of Houston. <laughs> so this episode, we're going to talk about something that you may or may not have heard of before. It's an it girl. And if you've heard of Paris Hilton, actually, you probably have heard of an it girl. But we're going to take the it girls way back to their very beginning and talk about how they started off and where the phrase came from. So, Lloyd, what did you find out in your quest to define the it girl? Well, yeah, I was going to say it's, it's, it's one of those sort of turns of phrase that's, that's pretty evergreen when you kind of, you know, look at how far back it sort of originates in this sense is the invention of the English novelist, journalist, screenwriter, and above all else, self-publicist, Eleanor Glynn. She was born in 1864 and lives on through to 1943, although she's sort of most active between about 1900 and 19, uh, sort of 20, not like the end of the 20s. So she's born in Jersey. She grows up in Canada and she's kind of immersed from an early age in aristocratic life by an Anglo-Irish grandmother. So we have an Irish connection there. But um, there are so many post-colonial layers to Eleanor Glynn. I mean, the Irish, the Canadian, yeah. the bit of French Canadian. The yeah, and all the kind of Orientalism that, that's sort of everywhere in her work. She begins writing in about 1900 and really kind of makes her name in 1907 following the publication of a novel called Three Weeks, which featured a, for the time, rather racy account of extramarital sex between a young English aristocrat and a mysterious older woman who's known only as the lady. And like a weirdly disproportionate amount of the novel plays out on or centers around a tiger skin rug. If you like, if you, if you just control F tiger in that book, it's like half the novel. But, but yeah, so in, in one sort of crucial moment, 
they were sitting on their t- on the tiger by now, and she undulated round and all over him, feeling his coat and his face and his hair as a blind person might, till at last it seemed as if she were twined about him like a serpent. So there's a, a sort of famous piece of doggerel that does the rhyme shortly after that novel comes out that, that goes, Would you like to sin on a tiger skin with Eleanor Glynn? Or would you rather err with her on some other fur? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I bring up this, you know, sort of tigerish quality of animal magnetism because that's basically what Glynn goes on to kind of refine into and popularize through the term it. Um, so she first uses it in a, a novel called The Man in the Moment in 1914, where we're told that uh, this particularly sort of sexy fellow called Michael, he had it manifesting in every part of him and his atmosphere a magnetism a hateful odious power which she felt and fiercely resented is this charisma is that what she's trying to I say mean, basically it's like he, he it just seems to be the like eminent capacity to radiate being dtf it's <laughs> it's 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 that thing that makes you kind of look at a person and go oh this person fucks <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah so glenn kind of takes it on the road. She heads across to Hollywood and, and sort of sets herself up as a both like a screenwriter, but also like a consultant on sort of both kind of decorum and sexiness. So she has these like publicity stills sort of put together where she's like, you know, teaching various sort of up and coming stars, like how to perform a love scene and so on. But yeah, anyway, basically th- this sort of campaign of self-publicization and pushing of the pronoun it to its kind of semantic extremes culminates in the publication of an article entitled It in Cosmopolitan in 1927, which is sort of timed to coincide with the fortunate possessor must have that strange magnetism which attracts both sexes. He or she must be entirely unselfconscious and full of self-confidence, indifferent to the effect he or she is producing and uninfluenced by others. There must be physical attraction, but beauty is unnecessary. Conceit or self-consciousness destroys it immediately. How does that work? How how can you be like magnetically hot and not know it? It just doesn't work that I, way. I, I do feel like this also kind of persists into like how we think of cool, right? Like in the, in the sort of like fifties and sixties, right? That that sense of it being like, oh, the, the truly cool person doesn't know or care if they're cool, and that's what makes them all the cooler. But yeah, also, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that Eleanor Glynn definitely had like an erotic thing for tigers, but like. But you're not not saying it either, are yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> she was all about that fearful symmetry, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, so I mean, this takes us up to then, I guess the the the, the film it, which is released in 1927, and is a star vehicle for Clara Bow, who is who in the process becomes you know the the it girl. So I think. There's a weird matter of inflection here. I think that obviously now we talk about the it girl, like a compound where, you know, it's all one sort of thing. I guess originally Clarabo is the it girl, as in the girl who was in it. Um, this is going to be unlistenable. <laughs> um, but she is both the girl who was in it and also the girl who embodies who has it. it. Yeah, yeah. Although even that is, I think, kind of carefully engineered, right? So like Bo, but her agent, who was a very sort of unscrupulous guy, very much kind of pushes her for this part. 
and basically has the film sort of reworked from the ground up to, you know, kind of make her synonymous with this. She kind of seems to have been growing up to kind of herself as sort of tomboy, um, prefers the company of boys, you know, runs with gang, um, does a lot of sport, avoids feminine clothing, and, uh, you know, keeps her hair sort of cropped. And those kind of elements of her persona are emphasized on screen, right? So there's this sense that she's, you know, kind of shoes decorous and conventional femininity in favor of this like spontaneous vivacity and vibrant intensity um and i will say that like you know from a sort of contemporary standpoint like that is one of the things that makes her so watchable like she she really is a very modern screen performer um it's all very sort of you know kind of naturalistic for want of a better word and authentic feeling so she's the top box office draw of 1928 and 1929 and the second highest in, in 1927 and she receives kind of wild levels of fan correspondence which is one of the industry's sort of markers of success so in the month of january 1929 she receives 45,000 letters alone you know just in one month <laughs> yeah i mean can we talk about the film was it was it like considered a raunchy film when it came out or was was it more that because she is such an electric performer you know was it the film itself did people say oh this is a dirty movie or were they just kind of more about the ambivalence of her? i think it's it's one of those things where it's a bit like 50 shades of gray almost i think where the glenn's reputation plus bo's persona plus the perceived subject matter, right? Like, I mean, it as a kind of framing is so kind of nebulous, right? But, you know, it's basically like just calling a movie sex appeal. It's nothing of the plot, really. (laughs) Not that there is much of a plot. And also, like, Bo, like, sells it. And actually, there's a really funny or telling sort of description from the film's director about what he felt Bo sort of brought to the proceedings in this regard. It's a film where like gazes and people looking at each other is a constant sort of central to to everything that's happening. It's you know it, it is actually like from a cinematography standpoint, it's really interesting how it kind of fuses a certain sort of like flapper femininity, and we'll maybe talk about the flapper in a moment with consumerism and kind of like wish fulfillment. But it's an almost a kind of emergent female gaze, but. Yeah, so following my directions, we're told, Clara gazed at Moreno with an expression of lingering calf-like longing in her pretty face. Perfectly all right if she had stopped there, but she did not. Continuing on, camera still grinding away, her doll-like tantalizing eyes suddenly became inflamed with unwholesome passion. Then the young rascal suddenly changes her expression again, this time to one of virtuous, innocent appeal. The director, Clarence Badger, that's him we're hearing from there, angrily calls cut and confronts Clara. And what was all that about, he demanded. Well, Santa, which is her nickname for him, if you knew your onions like you were supposed to, you'd know the first look was for the lovesick dames in the audience, and the second look, that passionate stuff, that was for the boys and their papas, and the third look, well, just about the time all them old ladies are shocked and scandalized by the passionate part, they suddenly see that third look, change their minds about me having naughty ideas, and go home thinking how pure and innocent I was and haven't got me mixed up with this girl I'm playing, they'll come again when the next picture shows up. At a loss against such logic, Badger called action and continued shooting. <laughs> so she, she, she had a look for the censors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She knew exactly how to sort of pitch this. So in terms of like what 
gets the Irish censor and what does earn the film, you know, it's kind of like charge, I suppose, or, you know, basically you have sequences where at any kind of opportunity, Bo is showing off like her legs. So, you know, there's a sequence where they go to Coney Island and they go on lots of like, you know, they slippy slide things and like sort of roundabout thing, but with no center where you try and sit in the middle of it for as long as possible. And the various ways in which, you know, she sort of skittered off happen to, you know, kind of, conveniently you throw her into various states of sort of mild there's also a sequence where in a demonstration of you know kind of flapperish like ingenuity and working class you know kind of pluck she takes her like work dress and takes a pair of scissors to it and cuts it into something much more slinky and revealing nice yeah gotta love a costume remake they're the best what what i would say is like one of the things that marks this out is like a pre-code movie right so this is made before the the full introduction of the Hayes code right like you know, you do see her in her, like, in stockings and, you know, in a bra, even though it's all, you know, framed in the sort of context of, like, a fairly conventional rom-com. But, yeah, eventually, you know, she winds up clinging to the, the, the anchor on the side of the boat, dripping wet in very little, kind of, you know, fully exposed, like, you know, offered unto the gaze, and your man sort of swims by and kind of pulls himself up. And the sort of punchline of it all is, you know, that they wind up, it closes on them kissing, like they finally, you know, sort of get it together. So that the it girl is herself like a commodified version of independent femininity, but also the film kind of keeps, especially through Bo's performance, seems to always be on the verge of like overflowing that into something more den- like genuinely sort of destabilizing. So, yeah. And I guess just to round it off, unsurprisingly, yeah, the, the, the censor was not thrilled. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm shocked. I thought he'd love a film with uh, wet t-shirt scenes, underwear. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, he, he was he was not a fan of this. So this isn't a comment about the film It, actually. It's it's, it's comment about another film of hers called Hula, but he, he references It. He, he says, Miss Clara Bow's great asset is said to be It, which is the euphemism for sex appeal adopted by the edifying novelist Eleanor Glynn. The film was evidently designed to get 100% of it, and it has succeeded so well that I reject it with pleasure. I mean, he just, he really loses his shit in that, doesn't he? He is so catty. It's not really, like, there is the kind of prudishness undergirding that that we might expect, but it's like, it's more his sense that it's like, oh, this is gauche. Like, this is really, um, you know. Like, this offends me on an artistic level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, yeah, the fact that he's, you know, well aware of Glenn and, you know, aware of the whole kind of it phenomenon. But yeah, there's, you know, he he, he talks elsewhere about wanting to eliminate all glimpses of the semi-nudity of the heroine, whether unhealthily suggested through diaphanous drapery or actually revealed in scant stage clothing or in underclothing. And he, he, he wished that there should be no naval displays on the screens of Ireland. <laughs> because everybody is too busy gazing at their own navels for other people's navels. Thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that, that's the it girl, I, I suppose, as, as she stands or you know, plunges into the water in 1927. But, but where, where, where does she go from from here? the it girl that I want to talk about in a way is someone who complicates the definition just a bit. Uh, it's Mae West. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we love a bit of Mae West. 
So she's born in 1893, which means that when her first film, you know, really takes off, that's 1933. So she's 40 when she becomes a really big film star, which is, you know, in many ways, she's not a girl. You know, this is a nate woman. Yeah. <laughs> this is fully fledged. <laughs> um, so like I say, 1933 is her big movie and she's a star of the talkies because she is all about the delivery of her lines. I mean, we all know Mae West for the lines. You can look it up. You can buy all the merch. You can wear Mae West all day <laughs> and put it on your wall. Um, and she has great lines. But I think that her lines and it's her visual persona as well. Uh, like I said, she is, you know, older at this point. And she's playing in her first big movie, which is She Done Him Wrong. She plays opposite Cary Grant. And he's only 29 at that point, And he looks it. <laughs> you know? I mean, he, he looks even younger because he's, he's wearing quite an oversized coat. So he looks quite lost and a bit gawky. <laughs> and she is, you know, she is fully curvaceous, you know, standing there in her sparkles. And if Eleanor Glynn was into tiger skin... Mae West loves diamonds <laughs> and <laughs> this film is based on a stage play that she wrote. I mean, she also wrote the film. Like, that's the thing. She wrote nearly everything she's involved in. It's a Mae West production from beginning to end. You know, she controls the production of her persona really tightly. So she had written a stage play called Diamond Lil, which was wildly successful and hugely controversial, along with other things that she did. I mean, she was just outrageous on the stage and ended up being prosecuted for indecency. She does a, the shimmy in front of the court to prove that it's not indecent and they agree with her. <laughs> I think what's interesting about her coming onto the the cinema screen is that she is such a commercial success as a stage performer that the studios are willing to buy her in under her terms and conditions that she writes her own work and that she decides how she looks. And, you know, she is very much in control of herself because she's pre-established. Which, which is, I mean, not that it needs saying, but like that, that's a level of control that not even kind of male stars would be enjoying, let alone, you know. Yeah, it's it's remarkable in the context of the studio system at the time. And even now, really, she is... You know, she's kind of a one man, a one woman show. Well, because so I, I suppose the, 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 it feels like the sort of masculinist version of that story is like, oh, Orson Welles comes and does Citizen Kane, and that's what invents the modern auteur. And it's like, no, my my West did it. You know, backwards, forwards, in heels, in in diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, at a time, I suppose we all perceive the cinema to always want young women to be beautiful and attractive. And here she is at 40 being a femme fatale, you know, like she's a complete vamp and really is portraying herself as a very sexually desirable woman. And that is not ironic the way it's set up in the films at all. You know, it is not set up as we're supposed to be like a bit giggly mm. that this older woman with her curves and also her look is not fashionable for... 1933, because she looks and in fact is commented on in Vogue. They say she looks like a 1908 lady. So <laughs> she's actually like a throwback fashion wise in these incredible 
really tight to the the knees and then a fishtail skirt and she has the biggest hats. I mean, <laughs> they're so big. I think they must have nearly widened the doors to get her in because the hat is huge. And then there's the feather boa that goes all around. You know, she's just extra the whole time. <laughs> what one guy in Vogue in 1933 says, for this amply cushioned lady of the yellow hair and the leering lip has it to an overpowering extent she literally hurls it at you. <laughs> so there is nothing subtle about the it that Mae West is selling. <laughs> and it made me wonder, can it even be it if it's OTT like this, you know? <laughs> Amply cushioned, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's not fashionably skinny, you know? <laughs> And when you look at the the imagery the imagery of her from these films from she done she done him wrong and I'm no angel are both 1933 and they are massive successes. It's that sort of look that she's going for with bling and fur and blonde curls and the whole shebang. So although she is this extra presence, Janine Basinger argues that in fact she's a minimalist when it comes to acting, which is really interesting that she has things pared down to such a fine art that in fact all of this excess is entirely in service of a very narrow agenda so she has this walk everybody everybody has to google may west watch a film with her walking i can't describe it <laughs> i know people have said she's like the first and the greatest female impersonator but it is not I mean it is not a strut from the drag catwalk this is a kind of it's like a totter with with a bounce so she's tottering on her huge heels and of course her skirt is too tight to open her legs to walk in catwalk strides so she has this incredible gait that is so distinctive and then she rolls her eyes around from you know back and forth and up and down as she's looking at men generally <laughs> and she looks like she's about to eat them i was gonna say that 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 feels like something that that you know as, as we heard from that whole description of like clara Bow's, you know the, the things she can do with a succession of looks right i do think that what one of the things that seems to unite these filmographies is this kind of like unapologetic dramatization of like appetite from a woman yeah, of desire and of looking, like you said about that film where they spend a lot of time looking at each other. Mae West is primarily about consuming men through looking at them. <laughs> uh, because, you know, there is no nudity of Mae West in her films. She is always fully dressed. She is not interested in showing you her legs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But she is showing you her sexual desire the whole time. And even though she's like this incredibly exaggerated thing, I do think it's right that that little walk and the, the way she looks, but also the way she goes, mm-hmm, she has this kind of very slow, in a New York accent. <laughs> um, and I think it's right. Like these things sort of suggest sex in a, 
ineffable way. Well, this is yeah. I mean, that that's where the you know as 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 moderately ridiculous as all of this you know being bound up in in one very curt monosyllable like it does get at that all of those things that like cinema can kind of particularly i think sort of afford that you know it's the sort of thing that even though there's nothing on screen that's actually you know explicit or transgressive per se if someone walks in and you're watching it or you know you'd be like (laughs) yeah and she says herself it isn't what i do but how i do it it isn't what I say, but how I say it and how I look when I do and say it. <laughs> there are many things that go into this. Yes, there's the lines, which sometimes are remarkable. I mean, her most famous one from her first big film, which is She Done, she done Him Wrong. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents... The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And this is the one that everyone knows. So... Everyone says, come up and see me sometime. And that's the Mae West line. Mm. She didn't actually say it in the film. She said, come up and see me anytime. Which is, is it worse? Is it better? Who knows? But it, it is, of course, the delivery, you know, like that's a perfectly normal thing to say to anyone. <laughs> you could say that to your neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> And it's also in that scene, she is standing on a stairs and she's all in this beautiful sequined gown and Cary Grant is standing below her looking up, right? So Mae West was not a tall woman. So she is higher than Cary Grant and she is literally like stripping the clothes from his body with her gaze. And she's like, come up and see me 
anytime. You know? (laughs) (laughs) And the scene is all West, you know, this incredibly striking woman, even though Cary Grant, hot as fuck, like, I was going to say, yeah, no, no slouch. (laughs) But he is, he is figuratively and literally small in the film, (laughs) you know, in that scene. I mean, it's about her desire, not how desirable he is, you know, Mm. which is interesting, even though she's using him as a foil to show her appetite. I was just going to say, it's interesting that, you know, I guess conventionally one thinks of like the, you know, the female love object being the the sort of cipher who's just there to, you know, kind of afford visual interest or, you know, be something to be pursued by a male protagonist. So to have kind of like, even, you know, I guess by that, well, not not yet quite a big name, but to have a sort of Cary Grant and just be like, yeah, yeah, you're just there to be like wanted. <laughs> you're just sort of like, you could be a thumb. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> is, uh... He's just there to be oogled. Yeah. <laughs> you, you do get the impression with Wes that she could nearly do that if it was just a wooden dummy in front of her, that she could absolutely vamp that up. <laughs> so her two best films... The 1933 films, they're both pre-code films as well. So at that point, as you know, like the principles have been drafted, but everyone's a bit like, yeah, it's, you know, we'll get around to kind of implementing this at some point. But I suppose what I really would like to say about Mae West is that doesn't mean that she wasn't censored under the pre-code system as well, because the pre-production system where they submitted the scripts meant that things were changed and decisions made before the film is made that represent industry censorship as well. So for her, her film, She Done Him Wrong, which is based on Diamond Lil, because Diamond Lil, the stage play, was so notorious, they were like, you can't call the film Diamond Lil and we cannot reference Diamond Lil in any way. She she Done Him Wrong uh, doesn't make it better. (laughs) Like, definitely doesn't make it sound less sexy. I think that because things were a little bit more fluid in the pre-code system that they got away with it just a touch more. Uh, (laughs) She had to be separated like her, you know, stage persona, Lil, couldn't appear in the film, but she calls herself Lou. So, you know. (laughs) Not a lot of dots to, to join. Not a lot of dots to join. But they, they did also, once it was finished, they did put in some cuts as well. So there was, she sings a song called Slow Motion Man. So they cut a couple of verses of that because Mae West singing for too long just gets too sexy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) We can't allow a critical mass to to build up. (laughs) I think it's the cumulative effect, you know, two verses is okay, but you know, if we're going to have four to five, there's going to be a lot of slinking and there's going to be a lot of winking and we we need to cut that back. So the version that we see in 1933, it is still a product of a censorship system. I think that's important, even though we say pre-code, like it doesn't mean that they're entirely like free reign, do whatever the hell you like. It's not as simple as that. The film was hugely successful. She actually saved Paramount Pictures from going under. She made them so much money in one year that she saved their asses. And as for the film, I mean, it's not wildly successful as a film now when you look at it. It's more a series of great 
showpieces for Mae West that don't really run together very well in the sequence. It's set in New York in the 1890s, her favourite time. It's set in a nightclub slash bar, which is rung by a gangster and she's the mistress of the gangster and he buys her lots of diamonds. There are criminals, corrupt cops, there's murder. It's all very seedy underworld stuff. So yes, you can see why this is the sort of thing that the code wanted to eradicate. Cary Grant plays opposite her and he's a temperance man. He's supposed to be like the Salvation Army, I think, wearing a uniform and everything. And he's trying to sort of reform the system. Yes, I know. Yeah, he doesn't appear very often at all. It's quite disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) And West, like I said, is Lou. She's the singer and mistress of the guy who's running the bar. But in the end, it's revealed that Carrie actually is not a boring temperance man at all. He's, in fact, an undercover cop, serious undercover agent with a great, like, you know, alias like the Hawk or something. Um, And he's got the hots for Lou so bad that he doesn't prosecute her and he runs away with her in a carriage instead. So it's a very happy ending. So it is famous, like I said, for that line, come up and see me anytime. But actually, the film is online if you want to go look at it. And 33 minutes in, there's a stage chorus bit, which, as you were saying, legs, you know, legs are a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Well, stage choruses are girls there for their legs. So this is inevitably going to upset people. (laughs) And so there's, you know, they're, they're dressed in chorus girl outfits, only it's kind of bondage chorus girl. So they're, they're wearing these extraordinary boots, knee high, all laced, and cutouts and spiky heels. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Well, what we're, what we're getting here is it's real time me being like, I, I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, where's the chat? Right. So if you go to that link and 33 minutes in, I yeah, wow. Like I know what you mean it's. <laughs> And even the kind of like militaristic sort of edge to the, you know, the spear carrying and so on. It's, yeah. As you can imagine, like this sort of thing wouldn't really go down with James Montgomery, the man who didn't like legs or limbs or underwear. (laughs) Yeah, it would work. (laughs) The really fascinating thing about She Done Him Wrong is that James Montgomery didn't even see it because it was never submitted to the Irish censor for certification. I presume that the distributors looked at it and thought there's absolutely no chance we can cut this to suit this guy's tastes. (laughs) And the interesting thing about Mae West in Ireland and, you know, in terms of the consumption of her image in Ireland is that so this first film, She Done Him Wrong, doesn't get to the cinemas here and then her second film I'm No Angel which is way better and has way more Cary Grant as well which is you know obviously great (laughs) that is banned by Montgomery when he sees it and that was even though they had cut 17 and a half minutes before he even saw it so they had cut like a quarter of the film and he still didn't like it (laughs) It's, it's she's just too hot. She's too hot and and far too funny and too rude. Um, I'm no angel features her as a, you know, 
fallen woman effectively in court going, yeah, I am. So what? What are you going to do about it? I'm not ashamed. (laughs) So you can see why, like, that would be a problem. But I suppose they must have cut those sections and it still didn't work. Both pre-code Mae West films aren't actually seen in Ireland. But that doesn't mean, like, people don't know about Mae West because... She is a huge fashion icon as a result of these films. This incredibly distinctive look that she's got is reported in the kind of film news that's carried in the papers. So it's like, you know, what's trendy in film includes Mae West, star of I'm No Angel. And everyone in Ireland is going, that's great. We're never going to get to see I'm No Angel. (laughs) But I can wear my hair like Mae West, you know. I mean, this is one of the things that I find really fascinating about the whole sort of censorship culture is that obviously one of the things it does is produce these sort of weird, like, collective simulacra versions of things where it's like, okay, I've been afforded enough information to have the bare bones of what I've been denied. So now my imagination will supply the void in such a way that, like, you know, I, I, I'm there's no way, obviously, to, like, document it, but I find it fascinating, like, the idea of this, you know, this alternative version of 20th century culture that existed only in the minds of Irish people denied the possibility of seeing it for themselves. <laughs> exactly. And they know, in fact, Vienna, the censors in Vienna didn't like Mae West films, and that got reported in an Irish newspaper. So... Irish newspaper readers were like, oh, so it's like really rude. Okay, that's interesting. And then the newspaper says, I hope Ireland doesn't let this in because it's pure filth. And this woman says she's a Catholic, but I don't believe her. And, you know, so so you can read this and go, right, okay, mental note, go to the film. And then it never shows up. So... Like you say, there's this alternative imaginary of Mae West in Ireland in 1933 that's based on she's in a film that I can't see uh, that I know is dirty and she wears her clothes this way. Like, so she she exists, but not in the way that people in America and Britain are able to imagine her because they can't see her. Or I suppose more specifically, and another feature of, I suppose, you know, the 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 slightly fluid nature of censorship in 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 these islands, right, is that obviously anyone who could cross the border or who was across in, in Britain on work or something can see these things. So Exactly. You have these sort of odd trans the haphazard transfusions of, of that kind of excluded culture. Like they are showing the films in Northern Ireland, in Belfast and Derry at least, because they're being advertised in the papers. In Derry, they're actually not keen on Mae West at all. Uh, The councillors insist that because Derry at this point and still in Britain, they're still doing local censorship. So they haven't progressed to the Irish model of one censor certification for the whole country. So like Dublin used to, you have a little board in Derry who decide whether Derry should be allowed to watch film. So in May 1934, Derry City councillors are like, we need to, you know, this is disgusting. We need to look at this film and decide whether it's worth having on our screens. And the censorship board in Derry actually passes it for exhibition. 
this is in spite of the fact that a couple of the councillors are losing their shit and are like, this is filthy. And this is I'm no angel, the uh, fallen woman one. Uh, so that's also reported down south. So, you know, you're like, OK, so people in Derry don't like it. But if I could get to Derry, I could go see it, <laughs> which is very handy for people in Donegal. No, no, no shade to 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 the you know my my fellow country people, but also feels like yeah that one of the first and perhaps only times you'd be like I'm going to go to Derry for something real sexy. There's <laughs> 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 a time to get my rocks off in. <laughs> so, like you say, there are ways that certain numbers of Irish people can see May West in a limited way. But it isn't until 1935 that she actually, one of her films is shown in Ireland. So these are the postcode films, The Bell of the 90s and Going to Town. And they're, you know, they're not as good, really, to be honest. Um, She does come to Ireland, but late and in a different way to how she would be experienced through the cinema of other countries who've got to see 1933, 1934 and 1935 and also, as a final note, her one of her later films, Klondike Annie, which is all about religion and stuff. It's really, really odd. Anyway, that's banned entirely. And the the distributors don't appeal the decision. So that doesn't come to Ireland either. Okay. So the Irish public are well aware who Mae West is through obviously the fan magazines. I mean, a lot of those are coming in. Not all, because they are also trying to ban movie magazines. I was going to ask, yeah, how, how does the sort of print censorship in, inflect the circulation of stuff like Photoplay? Yeah, they are. They they ban various print magazines to do with cinema. They come and go off the lists because they can get appealed and the bans are only for short terms. And there's a commercial interest to appeal the ban. So they come and go. And I would suspect then as a result, you've got a certain amount of censorship from the distributors who don't want to bring in stuff that's too racy. Mm, So they probably decide to choose the least racy movie magazines. But there are bucket loads of them coming in. So people know all about Mae West and that, you know, that she's (laughs) sexy because that's what the fan magazines focus on is how racy she is and that she receives like hundreds of proposals of marriage from her fans. And so they do know who Mae West is. They're not completely deprived. (laughs) (laughs) But they do know that they have been denied it, you know, that they have been denied that (laughs) ineffable something. Yeah. (laughs) Where is, where is it in Ireland? Where is it? Derry, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) and then finally just to say that the the sad part is that after the code is tightened up in 1934 Mae West's early films aren't re-released because they can't get re-approval at that point America and Ireland sort of line up in their consumption of the Mae West public persona so Americans were allowed to see them for that two-year period but then after 1935 the the office starts to refuse to certify them. So her two 1933 films aren't shown in cinemas again for ages, as far as I know. So she does suffer from increased censorship under the code 
as well as the censorship that she got pre-code. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's it's a lot of complicated stuff with how her version of it is too sizzling. Yeah, and then retrospectively too, too hot to handle. Yeah, imagine 19, 1949, they're like, oh, this film from 1933 is just too dirty. We cannot have it on the screens. You're like, really? Yeah. You know, it, it really wrong for any sort of like presentist, you know, kind of sense of like, oh, history is a progress narrative of gradual liberalization. It's like, no, no, no. Like the, the 10s and 20s and, and early 30s were like raunchy. So yeah, that's the story of it in the early years. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, shall we do the sort of don'ts and, and be carefuls bingo to, to see how they they kind of hold up, I guess? Yes, yeah. I don't think there's any really, there's no, no profanity in it. There's, I, I would struggle to know whether there's like, well, apparently, I, mean, I, I guess there wasn't licentious or suggestive nudity in factor and silhouette or Certainly any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters, which I think is probably the important thing, right? There's there's a lot of happenstance, like, oh, no, I went down a slide, or, <laughs> oh, I'm in the water, or, oh, me and my gal pal are, edit, you know, we're, we're altering my dress. But I think, you know, it's an instructive example of how Honoured more, you know, in, in the, the letter, not the, the spirit, as it were. Yes, oh. yeah. No drugs, no sex perversion, which I think we're taking to mean sort of same-sex desire. No white slavery or miscegenation or venereal disease, childbirth or children's sex organs, ridicule of the clergy or offence to any nation or creed. I think we should stick with the don'ts rather than be careful because we've... Yeah, we'll be here all day. Yeah, it, it gets by pretty well. I think like I think sort of like we've been saying it's it's the it's the impression that it gives and it's the energy that it projects more than the kind of specific things that are depicted that's that's what's troubling here. Yes. Which I guess you know brings us back to that sort of indefinable itness. There is no don't or be careful that covers it. <laughs> Shall I just have a quick go off May West's she done him wrong? Yeah, let's let's see if there's anything that jumps out. Pointed profanity, no. Uh, any licentious or suggestive nudity? Well, I think the girls in the boots is close, but I mean, it's certainly, yeah. Mae West herself is almost always covered from head to toe. Like you get to see her arms. So in many ways, she's following the rules. Illegal traffic in drugs. Yes, it is referenced, as is corrupt cops. So, yeah, that's there. Any evidence of sex perversion? No. No. White slavery. Now, the white slavery is interesting because the novel that she wrote, based both on the film and the play, I'm not really sure which one she used the most, but the novel has a white slavery plot. Ah, okay. And, oh yeah, it must be the play. The play had a white slavery plot. And the studio code officers the in the Hayes office wanted them to get rid of white slavery from the film. And so they said they would. But to be honest, when I watched the film, I thought it was still there. So... <laughs> right. It's kind of hinted at, certainly, right, yeah, yeah. I think. 
Now, the thing is, if you read the book, if you read the novel, and if you knew the stage play, then you would know there was white slavery. So between the suggestion in the film and the greater context of her other work, I think you could tick white slavery. The audiences would have known that's what was going on. So that's two. Woo. <laughs> Miscegenation, no. Sex hygiene, no. I mean, the novel's more explicit, but no, not in the film. Actual childbirth, nope. Children's sex organs, nope. Ridicule of the clergy, no. There aren't really clergymen. I mean, the Salvation Army guy isn't a priest. And willful offence to any nation, race or creed. I would say no, but there are quite a lot of stage Irish people in it. <laughs> oh, no. But it's not as bad as you would expect. Yeah, so it's it's interesting that both of them don't really transgress the don'ts particularly much. <laughs> They're just too damn hot. It's a curse. God love them. Yeah, they just crackle with too much raw sex. <laughs> a problem we'd know only too well. Or yeah, I mean, personally, <laughs> it's, it's like it's the bane of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if nothing else we've established, if you're looking for it, Derry, Derry's the place to be. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.